I just wanted everything to be perfect. I had my life planned out. I was gonna have a husband, I was gonna have kids, I was gonna have the house, I was gonna put my head down, I was gonna go to school, I was gonna finish in four years. Very quickly I realized that you're not in control of your life. I feel like my life is already pre-planned out and I'm just learning as I go the steps to go forward. Welcome to What's Underneath, the podcast that will inspire you to accept the skin you're in and step into your most whole, powerful self. I'm Lily Mandelbaum, and sitting next to me is my mom, Elisa Goodkind, and we are the creators of Style Like You. In our podcast, we bring you the extended interviews from our video series, The What's Underneath Project, in which diverse role models strip down to open up and claim the power of the skin they're in. The first step to self-acceptance is being radically honest about the things you're ashamed of, And by listening to these stories, you are tapping into the healing power of vulnerability, truth sharing, and the unshakable bravery to be yourself. You are giving yourself permission to recognize that you are completely beautiful and enough as you are. In honor of pride, this episode is made possible with the support of Spring Health. Spring Health is breaking barriers to mental health by providing employers with a comprehensive and effective solution to employee mental well-being. Follow us on Instagram at stylelikeyou and at spring.health to learn more about our partnership and how you can join in on our mental health awareness campaign. Hey everyone. Hi everyone. We hope you're doing well. We're really excited because today we'll be launching our What's Underneath Pride series, um, also in partnership with Spring Health an incredible organization that's dedicated to eliminating barriers to mental health in the workplace and who supported us also last month in bringing our mental health awareness series to life. We have an amazing episode to launch with that my mom will tell you a little bit more about in a moment. But before that, I wanted to let you all know that on Monday, this coming Monday, we will be announcing an amazing What's Underneath event that's going to be happening virtually Um, where one of you will be getting selected to be featured in a What's Underneath video and having your interview live in front of an audience at the event and where we'll also be facilitating like group What's Underneath sharing experiences to bring this community together. So please follow us on Instagram at spring.health and at styleikeu, S-T-Y-L-E-L-I-K-E-U to learn more about the event that we're going to be uh, hosting later in June and to learn about how you can submit yourself to be considered to be one of the interviewees at that event and have your own What's Underneath video air. Just a little bit on our new episode with Claire Raymond, who is incredibly brave, 22-year-old. Since she's been 11 years old, uh, just a really excruciating time dealing with back pain and with a condition called tether cord syndrome, which has uh, pretty much left her not being able to experience at all a normal childhood and having to deal with chronic and often very severe pain, back pain that has made it so that she's been bedridden and, you know, at times can't even be comfortable sitting, Um, who is now in a wheelchair despite mental health issues that she's dealt with around the pain and around her disability. She has come to a place in her life into a really amazingly uh, positive place in her life, having found community, both a queer community 
and a community um, of people who have to deal with what with tethered cord syndrome and just disabilities in general. And it's just such a testament to how healing uh, it can be when we see each other, when we are able to mirror each other, when we're able to see our own stories in, in other people's lives and in their story. Um, and this has been something that has really been absolutely instrumental in giving Claire a new lease on life and, and actually has created her to be vibrant and powerful, creative and inspiring person that she is today at, a, at an extremely young age. She's definitely uh, someone who is a leader and, and has a, an extremely powerful perspective to give all of us in terms of gratitude for just the simple things like living life with not being in pain, but also gratitude for being comfortable in your sexuality and as she is in her queer sexuality, and then also just how incredibly essential community is and connecting to other people and being vulnerable and releasing shame and sharing stories with each other. It's, it's, it's been it's, it's as deeply healing as almost anything else that we can do for each other. So I hope that you uh, find her story as uplifting and perspective giving as we do. Sending you lots of love and always would love to hear from you on, on everything. We really would treasure your comments on Instagram or wherever we can be found. And this episode, like many actually that we've done lately, does touch upon suicidal ideation, which is, you know, we think is interesting in that, like, it just shows how common it is and how not alone we all are with our different various mental health struggles. But I do want to just mention that in case anyone has any sensitivity or would find that triggering to just be mindful of that moving forward in this episode. Thank you and hope you enjoy. Lots of love. So can you just start by talking about how you're feeling right now? I am a little bit nervous, but very excited. This is one of my first times really out with other people since the pandemic started. So I'm honored to be with all of you today. So can you talk about what your style says about you? I think my style says that I have my shit together, which definitely is not always the case. I feel like I was not in control of a lot of things in my life that have happened to me. And so when I can find a place to have control, I tend to hold on to that. So for me, living every day in sweatpants and cozy clothes, love that. But when I would leave the house, it'd be an event. So like I would want to put on an outfit, want to make myself feel confident and good. And like I had a sense of control over something. I think it was a process of discovering what made me me because I grew up in a heteronormative society where I was told to fit in a certain mold, to have, you know, to be the most successful, to have people like you and look at you in a positive light. So you try to go with the trends, you try to go with what everyone else is doing, try to fit in. And I think it took me having my diagnosis get to a disabling spot where it was like, well, now there is no way for me to fit the mold, so I should start fitting and making my own mold and who I feel comfortable in, a place that I don't have to squeeze myself in a certain outfit and look a certain way. Like I should, I've lived with a lot of discomfort, and so I want to have comfort in my life 
where I can, and style definitely is one of those places for me. I was the kid in kindergarten who had a year supply of Easter dresses because I liked the big, the big moment and I'd come to school and all the parents would stare at me until their daughters and kids were coming home later that evening saying, I wanted that big dress that Claire had. That is the innocence of childhood that we're all trying to return to. Like your true form of yourself, the self that didn't see the covers of magazines, that didn't see the most likes on Instagram, the side that was just themselves and okay with it. When you were conforming more like with your style, like what would what was what was the thing that like you felt you had to be? Went into middle school 2010, 11. So I don't know, it was very like Hollister and um, you know, the skinny jeans and you're trying to go the certain way and I think back to bras, like for the first time all our bodies are changing and we're all looking very different and you are looking in the mirror and girls are staring at you more in a certain way and you're getting a bra for the first time and everyone says your boobs are small and the boys are making comments so you try to put on the push-up bra, form your body into the shape that's the most desirable and I think that was definitely something that influenced it and even delayed me finding my own sexuality because I was listening to what everyone else was saying. What boy do you like? Um, oh, I think so-and-so likes you. And you start to realize like, okay, this is, this is where we're going. Everyone else is noticing these things. I'm not, but I probably should start paying attention to it. So then you start pulling out those certain boys and certain people and completely ignore any other possibility because when you're in a conservative area, that's what you're taught is the next step in life. What, did you have long hair? Did I have long hair? Yes, I, the longest I had was in high school and it was down to my waist and then I donated it. But even my hairdresser, she had me, she wouldn't do a full pixie right away. She had me cut it to my shoulders cause she thought it would be too much to go straight to the sh super short hair. And about a week later I went back and had her cut it all off. Cause I was like, this is what I wanted. This is who I am. Even just thinking about to that, you know, like I was just, I was confident in that decision, like no. And I tried to grow my hair back out about a year ago and I looked in the mirror and I didn't like, it didn't feel right in my heart. And then I cut it again and it was like freedom. So can you talk about um, assumptions that people make about you based on your appearance? I lived a lot of years with an invisible disability. When you looked at me, you couldn't tell what I had gone through. And even with the scar on my back, if on everyday life, you're not seeing my exposed back and things like that. Uh, now being, having a very visible disability, uh, it's been interesting for the first time. I've been using a wheelchair for two years, I believe, but pandemic. So I, I didn't really, wasn't out there. And so I, I'm grateful for that though, because I felt I was able to get confident in myself before anyone else could impose on that and give those negative views, look at me in the wrong way or in a judgmental way, staring at me too long. Like I felt confident in myself, but going out, of course I get stares. When I had to use a walker before the chair, it was, what happened to you? Like, oh, just very, people believe they have a right to know your medical history when you have a very visible disability. First thing they, you know, I had to really push myself to get out of the house due to pain. Like I had to convince myself, like, okay, this is gonna be worth it. Go out, try to focus on anything else but the pain. And then someone immediately sees my scar, saw my walker, and it's like, 
what happened to you? Where'd you get that scar from? What's this? What's that? And brings you right back. And then the pain worsens because now you're focusing on it. And that's why I am so public about talking about uh, my disability and being a wheelchair user, having um, an ambulatory wheelchair user, so I'm not paralyzed at all. I just have my spinal cords affected. And I wanna start educating people because that's where it starts. I mean, I get, I get stared at when I move my leg. I got annoyed because I did a dance video and my foot moved like that and someone said she's faking it and she's using a chair because she's lazy. Because they assume you're paralyzed. Yes, and they think the only representation of media they've seen of wheelchair users is a tragedy that's happened, this big event, now they're paralyzed and they, they have to fight the disability. But for me, my big growth was learning to live with my disability. I fought it for so long. I had over 13 operations and I'm just fighting, fighting, fighting. And we got to a point where it was pain management and not like curable anymore. And so I had to stop fighting it and start accepting it. And so, yeah, I just started like, just fuck them. I'm just gonna embrace myself. I'm gonna love myself for the first time in so many years. And I feel like especially, again, as woman or woman presenting, that's something we're taught from a very young age is to try to make others happy. And it's like, no, I've, fought through hell and back just to be able to tolerate sitting. I was bedbound for two years. So for me to be here right now sitting, I'm like, I am so excited to be here. And these people have no idea about that. But I'm gonna completely rock it and I don't care anymore. So I posted a clapback video and it was me. I crossed my leg in it and it got 8 million views. For me, it's crossing my leg in a wheelchair. I think that is the major thing you look at that that should be alarming, that me saying, crossing my leg and saying, don't assume someone's medical history or assume they're faking a disability because they can move their leg. I had to stop reading the comments because there are thousands and thousands and thousands. A lot of it like, hey, thanks for bringing this to my attention. I had no idea and I should be diversifying my feed more that I'm looking at every day. But then I got the people that were, I think they see a confident woman in a chair and that's a threat to them. They see me, being a queer woman, being a disabled woman, and they view that as, wow, like I, I am just, I feel threatened that she's gotten to a level of self-love and self-acceptance that I'm not at. And the second I took on that point of view, the comments stopped hurting. So now can you go back to like where you were in middle school, like just describing when, the dis when this all started? When I was in the fifth grade, I went to the Orange County Fair with my family and Minnesota cousins. And I had back pain. We walked around all night. I'm like, mom, my back hurts so bad. And she's like, what 11 year old is having back pain? And then we just kind of forgot about it. And then back pain started to worsen fairly quickly. Then a couple of weeks, uh, I'd wake up in the middle of the night with not being able to move my legs. They'd be pulled up to my chest. And I'd had a loft bed, so I'd have to lower myself down without the use of my legs and drag myself down the hallway to my parents' room grab them, wake them up, and so I got the diagnosis of tethered cord syndrome. So I was born with a tumor in my spinal cord and a blood vessel that was supposed to be enclosed in the spine but was outside and a fatty lipomeningocele. So it was like a little fatty mass that grows around to protect the exposed blood vessel. And it is oftentimes diagnosed at birth. There is some visual cues, but for me, I. I had this ticking time bomb in me and I grew up with the complete, completely oblivious, the beautiful oblivion 
honestly, because I had an active childhood. I was the kids that were out with my neighbors till the sun went down, and I'm so grateful that I was able to have all of that. What would happen when, you're, when you woke up with your knees up like that? What would your parents do? What would happen? My dad would carry me all curled up in a ball to the car, go to the ER, and this last time was after I was diagnosed. We were waiting to book surgery, but my legs weren't moving at all, and it's extremely uncomfortable. And we go to the ER, and the doctor said um, she's attention-seeking. Um, is there any other medical conditions in the family? Yes. Uh, dad has migraines. I think that she's attention-seeking, and that was my first experience um, being a woman in the healthcare system. Good introduction. Definitely um, put me on a road to learn to have to advocate as much as I could because even now, if I go to a doctor's appointment sometimes, um, I get taken more seriously when my dad's there versus my mom, and I'm an adult. So we did my surgery. We um, cut my spinal cord off of the tumor, and they said it was like a rubber band that's pulled and stretched, and you cut it, and it, it flung out of you. It's supposed to be free-floating, but it was tethered down, so when you free it, it went back into place. So that's good. Yes. Okay. I had a 40% chance of retethering the scar tissue. That's when scar tissue grows around the base of your spinal cord. That's supposed to be free-floating and holds onto it. So that causes pain, causes nerve damage. And I've retethered over six times. What was it like to, at first, when you're in fifth grade, did you have any ability to like process what this meant, or was it just like not a big deal? You didn't think much of it, or? I think that's the beauty of a kid, is my biggest goal. My parents are freaking out, obviously. There's we're directly accessing my spinal cord, kind of a gigantic surgery. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I was like, okay, how many weeks can I go back in the playground? Mm -hmm. Just beautiful, that childhood mind that, again, like trying to return to that feeling of just the purity and the simplicity of that. And then after I had my um, spinal cord free, I grew nine inches. So my body was trying to have a growth spurt, but was being held down the whole time. I went from being number two on the soccer team, which is the smallest, to like number nine. <laughs> that was, so post that first surgery, what, what, did you feel that you were gonna be completely fine? Was that I was so young that I just trusted the word of a doctor and said, yeah, it's, it's a rare diagnosis, so it can go any way. But I was feeling good, I was back to school and started middle school, started getting into like the normal kids stuff and being able to participate in anything I wanted to. And it's interesting because my original diagnosis in the fifth grade, that's the first time my disability took something from me. Before that, I had, the sky was the limit of what I wanted to do. I grew up in a privileged place in my household that if I wanted to do soccer, I could do soccer. If I wanted to do dance, I could do dance. But I was competitive, so I did a lot of sports. But then when disability took away, or my first diagnosis took away that portion of me, my parents were like, well, we need to do something else because that's heartbreaking. So I started to get into theater and dancing and acting and performing. And it's interesting because that was my first introduction into something. And then I go through this whole experience of losing everything again. And then I ended it with dance again. So I find so much beauty in that. For two solid years, I ran cross country, ran track and field. Had like the third time in my school for running the mile. I, sky was the limit again. And then after my eighth grade year, I re-tethered. And after that, it's never been the same. Was it something that was hanging over your head? 
Um, at the time, no, because I think I was so young the first time that my body and brain just kind of blocked it out and I moved forward with my life, kind of forgot about it in a sense, that child resil resiliency of just being able to move forward with your life. But at that point, my surgeon didn't think I would have a successful surgery to remove scar tissue. So I actually went to pain management and they did nerve ablation, which is where they would burn down into my back till I screamed. And that's where mental health trauma began. Just very terrifying to be in eighth grade, laying on a table a couple times a month and they burn into you till you scream. And it was traumatizing for me, traumatizing for my mom to be there. It was definitely pretty gnarly. So they thought that I was having nerve damage from nerve or nerve pain from nerve damage. So they thought if they could just do nerve ablation, burn on that nerve to get rid of the pain, kind of just kill off the nerve endings, then I'd be good to go. But the problem was my spinal cord, not the nerves. My spinal cord was stuck in scar tissue. So when they did that original scan, we, sometimes scar tissue doesn't show up on MRIs. So he's like, I think you're just having some pain, so go to nerve you know, get those nerves looked at, basically. And now when we talk to my surgeon about it, he says, I would have never permitted that to happen if I would have known what they were actually doing to you. How often did you have to do that? I, I honestly can't even tell you. I know it was at least once a month, but so much of my trauma, like I can't even sometimes differentiate between different surgeries because it all kind of blocks out in my mind together because that's how the brain heals from trauma is sometimes just get rid of it. And that these were, you, ha you had to do these before you had the second surgery? Yes, we returned back to my neurosurgeon and he was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're doing this to you. The next step would be exploratory surgery. There's no promises. We would just open you up and see what's going on. And that's when he said, it looks like a fucking bomb went off in there with scar tissue. Just like everything was just completely stuck together. When we were still trying to figure it out, I started high school at that point, and that's full-time schedule. It's carrying books from classes for the first time. It's a lot going on, and I was joining musical theater. I was excited to have this new experience and be able to do what everyone else was doing and feel that sense of normalcy, and my back got so severe that I was saying, you know, I don't know what else to do at this point, but exploratory surgery, I was at the point where my life, the quality of life was going down because I was unable to even, you know, to sit, to walk, to tolerate living, basically. So we opted for exploratory surgery and he found all the scar tissue in there. Now we all trust me, my surgeon's like, oh, Claire knows the feeling, my parents, everyone. It's like, because every single time I've retethered, I've called it because I know my body and I know the way it feels and I feel like that's connected me more to my body as well that I trust the feelings I feel and if something's not right, go with the intuition, don't push it off. Like I'm too busy to deal with it because with my condition, there can't be too busy to deal with it because it'll shut your body down. And you were saying that that's when your like mental health became like a, a problem or a struggle or, or? Definitely in those next, those following years of high school, it began. My life was revolving around surgery, or pain coming back, surgery, recovery, a couple months in between. And then it was just this pattern over and over and over again. So when you're, you're that old and you're trying to maintain friendships, you're trying to get involved in school, you're trying to just, 
I have an older sister and I saw her have all these awesome friends and experiences and like that's what I wanted and I didn't have a choice at that point. I had to do what my body, the will of my body was able to do and I had to do a lot. I think after, throughout my whole high school experience, I don't think I ever finished a whole year in person. I had to go online, I had to, and again, I'm so grateful and privileged to have had that option because I would have had to drop out of school at 14. <laughs> but yeah, it was definitely that repetitive motion. And then it got to the point where my whole life was just swallowed by that. I think something with depression and anxiety, PTSD, you don't realize it's worsening until you're at the bottom the first time. I always say, when my depression's bad, the future gets foggy. I couldn't see tomorrow, I couldn't see college, I couldn't see a career, I couldn't see me in my 50s, I couldn't see me in five years. I, it was slowly getting to that point and then it got to the point where the suicidal thoughts started and then I was already seeing a therapist at that point and then that's when it got to the point of saying, I was terrified to tell a therapist that, which I think is important to say because we don't talk about mental health in that aspect. It's like, well, she was suicidal, so she knew she needed to get help, but there was so stigmatized that I was terrified to even say it because I didn't want it to be disappointing. So it got to the point where I was like, I was almost begging my parents, um, I was gonna call 911 because I felt like it was gonna end for me, basically. Didn't have a plan, but it was getting to the point where I was so terrified of my own thoughts. My mom was sleeping with me every single night because I was terrified to be alone with my thoughts. And I had to learn, my favorite author, Jenny Lawson, says, depression lies, don't believe it. It's telling you life's over, it's telling you. Mm -hmm. So I started going to intensive outpatient program and it's three times a week, three hours a day. My whole senior year of high school was doing that. Friends were going to the football games and I was going to therapy because I wanted to continue to live my life. Because if I didn't go to therapy and didn't have the resources to go to therapy, I wouldn't be sitting here in front of you guys today. It was just grasping at straws for me to stay afloat with physical health and mental health. That was in between surgeries, that mental health started to decline. And um, halfway through my senior year of high school, physical symptoms came back from my scar tissue retethering. And then symptoms of postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome called POTS started and was misdiagnosed as panic attacks because when I would stand up too quickly, my heart would race and it feels like a, if you've ever had a panic attack, that's what it feels like where it's like your whole body, like you can't breathe, you feel like you're having a heart attack, you don't know what's going on. And so then at that point we brought in medications and then I was overdrugged. I don't remember the majority of my senior year of high school because we were switching from different antidepressants and then the antidepressants would cause me to not be able to sleep. So then I would take a sleeping pill prescribed. Every, this is all under a doctor's care. Then an anxiety medication, that's not working. So then she's taking a full bar of Xanax every day just to survive, all misdiagnosed. Um, I had. I had POTS the whole time and I just was diagnosed a year ago with it. So I've gone like three years with all of these symptoms. I was also treated, I had a super severe headache that was debilitating for a couple years in high school and that's also POTS. We thought I had a spinal fluid leak. I had surgeries to repair a spinal fluid leak that didn't exist. So more trauma, more time in the hospital. I had a drain leaking spinal fluid out of my back and I was bed bound for 12 days 
just staring at my ceiling, couldn't move because there was a tube going directly into my spine. When you have trauma to the spinal cord or some people are just born with it, but for me it was caused by trauma. The body can't regulate itself anymore. And just misdiagnosed and again, a lot of times with women, they're just like, it's just anxiety. Like, let's not look at her blood pressure and what it could be. So it took me finding the community and people saying, hey Claire, you say you have this, 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 and this, that could be POTS. And so I asked my neurosurgeon, he's like, oh my gosh, that, that's it. Went to a dysautonomia doctor. He's like, yeah, that's what you have. And then I had another spinal surgery in high school. It's just, I stopped counting how many I've had, but that was my last, was it my last? No, my freshman year of college, I think was my last detethering surgery. And after that, he said, if I go in again and remove scar tissue, um, your spinal cord's so delicate, my dura, which surrounds it, you cut it open and you should be able to stitch it. Mine was like wet tissue paper. So you couldn't even get a stitch through it. It's like, it's, 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 we can't go in there anymore. It's not, it's gonna keep retethering. We've seen it do it all these times. It's putting a bandaid over something that we can't keep doing that. And so at that point, that was definitely where the hopelessness, really for my whole family, it was like this panic because there are no treatment options for two years. So I was bed bound for two years. I tried to go back to college a couple more semesters just trying to get back in in my body. I couldn't do it. I don't remember a whole year um, because I was on so much pain medication. And how old are you now? 22. This is probably my first year of being able to tolerate sitting. So we had an air mattress in my living room so I would get in the wheelchair. I didn't have one I could use myself. It was just the hospital transfer chair. My mom would bring me out to the living room. I'd lay in the living room. And that was my, my life, watching all my friends go off to college, follow the career paths I wanted to have, find friends, like join clubs, this, the, the college experience you watch on TV. Everyone's, everyone's out there without having to deal with their body. And my body, stopped me in my tracks. There was, I couldn't do anything about it. It was just waiting till we found a solution for this problem. Like over this timeline, like what is going on with like your um, like understanding of your like queerness and your sexuality and like how is that interplaying with your mental health oh, and everything going on? It completely interlaces with it because I, my whole high school journey and even I feel like middle school was the masking but high school is when everyone started dating and I didn't even have the option to even experience that. And I only went on one date in high school, but that was actually my first sign that I wasn't straight, but I was so preoccupied with just surviving that I didn't even pick up on it. And it wasn't until like, I actually came out that I was like, oh my gosh, that date where he tried to grab my hand and my whole body pulled away. And in my head, I was like, you do that? Why? You've been waiting for me to hold your hand all night. Why didn't you do that? You've been preparing for this. Like my body, my mind was like, don't like that before I even knew it, which I think is kind of special that it's already in you. At the time, I thought it was anxiety though. My first queer crush was my senior year of high school. Shout out to the redhead in my class that I don't know your name, but she walked into my class and she had this grunge style. She had this super edgy, sharp, electric makeup and she just kind of was like, I don't give a fuck what anyone thinks about me. Don't even know if she was queer, but just 
My heart sank and the butterfly started. And I was like, what is this feeling? I thought we all had to convince ourselves to like people. You just feel it naturally. And that was my first, like, it was actually just gay panic of like, <gasps> I've, I'm pretty outgoing. I can talk to most people, but when she would talk to me, like the words would just escape and I would just mutter out, yeah, I did the math problem this way. And I'd be like, why can't I even talk to her? And it was, it was just gay panic, little Claire. Like you were figuring it out. Just give yourself some space to absorb it. And yeah, I mean, I, it was difficult too because I started to realize that and then I'm grateful to have the access on the internet to be able to Google things. I, how, many, how many of us in the queer community have taken the am I gay quiz? Like, and if you answer any of the questions that comes out is, you're gay. And I was like, oh, what does this mean? And I didn't know, I felt the pressure to fit a label because everyone's like, oh, I'm bi, I'm pan, I am a lesbian, I am. And, and when you're figuring it out, and a lot of people just feel the pressure to pick that. And I found a podcast that they interview people's coming out stories. And so for the first time ever, it wasn't someone that's like, I'm queer, here I am. It was, oh no, I had no idea. And this is how my story played out. And I think that's the beauty of having these options and media open now that we get to watch, listen to actual queer people tell their stories, not just, I mean, I am a fan. I was an L word person that definitely solidified my my sexuality was my first time actually seeing like women own themselves and just embrace themselves and seeing like queer sex. We don't see that on TV, especially growing up in a conservative city. There were no L word billboards for me to be like, oh, well that looks like something I'd like. <laughs> so I'm grateful to have had access to those things without having to tell anyone. But then it was difficult too because I was under my parents' cell phone plan. My dad had my, um, you know, being a beginner driver, he would track us as we drove anywhere to make sure we got to our destination safely, especially living in California. Like the roads are crazy and he sees people getting crashed, crashes daily. And so he'd make sure we got there safe, my sister and I. And I wanted to go to the LGBT center in Long Beach, but I had to come out to one of my parents in order to do that or else my location would give it away. So it's that double-edged sword of technology, like to have the access here, but then there's no like being anonymous. And how did, how did that go? Had to come out to my mom first. Um, I actually came out to a friend before that saying like, I'm just trying to figure out my sexuality. And she was like, that's cool. A lot of people are, that's completely normal. So that was my great first experience at least having a friend be like, it doesn't change anything. I love you for who you are and it's not gonna change. So I had that under my belt. And it actually happened, my coming out because I was at a party with my family where transphobic comments were being made. And I was, I was fuming so much that I couldn't even say anything in the moment of like, well this, 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 this. I was just building, building, building up. And so I opened the door and someone's like, where are you going? And then everyone like looked over and I said, I can't stand here and listen to you people say these horrific, horrific things. Slammed the door and left. My first time ever where I wasn't just, it was my actions spoke louder than the words of me like making that notion of just don't want to be associated with anyone who's trash, trashing uh, trans women. I'm not going to be a part of that. And so when I came home, my mom was like, what happened? I was in the garage. Why did you, I went to my friend's house. Why did you just leave? And I was laying in my bed 
because I went straight to my room when I came home and she walks in, like, why did you do that? And I was like, well, I have something to tell you. And then she says like, what, what, what? And so I said, I'm not straight. And there was silence. And I, my mom and I are so close because she's been there through everything with me, trauma-wise, with surgeries. My, my dad worked a full-time job so that she could be there with me through everything. She was like my best friend, my caregiver, everything. And so in my head, I thought she knew. I thought there were little signs that I had picked up on, like um, a blog post about a daughter coming out that she showed me. And I was like, oh, she knows. Like, this is gonna be pretty easy, she knows. And then oh, when I told her, she was like, oh, I just wasn't expecting to have this conversation tonight. And I was like, you didn't know? She's like, well, no. And so at that point, then I was like, oh, no, this is the unexpected. I don't even know what to say in this situation. And I was like, well, this is why. Like, I feel these certain ways. And I'm definitely starting to feel certain ways a different way now that I'm having time to think about it. And she was like, well, are you sure? It's just because you missed that high school time to figure out your sexuality. Like, are you sure? Like, it's just because you haven't been out there enough to figure it out. And so that's why you think you know, you're queer. He's like, well, no, actually, um, I'm queer because I like women. <laughs> but when you're raised in a town where everyone's straight, presenting at least, I mean, I never saw women or men walking on the street, people with the same sex or people who weren't just heteronormative out in public holding hands. I didn't grow up in that. And so in my head, I'm like, I'm different now. I am the other, I am going through all of this and so it's funny because when I actually came out to like both my parents went to it was 2019 right before the pandemic hit I actually got to it was it's my last time now walking in the pride parade because next time I'll be rolling so just the power of that event I still feel like the electricity in my soul of an entire city of everyone just cheering for you and full support there's no hiding everyone's who they are everyone in that entire city is loving you for who you are and I forever hold on to that feeling of that um just extremely grateful for it because I was like okay I'm queer here we go pandemic hit and so completely shut off just now I'm in the house and I can't online date because you know I I'm in a, a body that's can't handle COVID necessarily because at that point um my back was starting to hurt. I was wearing like a back brace to try to like give me support. And my condition after 2019 began to very quickly decline. I went from walking five miles a day to um, just, I can do a few steps into the bathroom before I'm toast for the day. And that's still to this day, like you, that's like the most you can do is a few steps. Yes, uh, because when you straighten your legs um, and your spinal cord's tethered, it's pulling the nerves. So the more I do it, the worse off I'm gonna be. It immediately is gonna hurt my legs, but it's pulling at the nerves that are tethered in your spinal cord. So, I mean, not great for those nerves to just be like mm -hmm. repeatedly, but no, I would be, if I were to walk the whole day, it's not even possible. Like I would be able to do, right now my legs are hurting and I'm sitting down. Mm -hmm. But I did that after that pride parade, pandemic hit, that's when the steady decline happened and we were out of options. So can't detether anymore, can't go in and scrape the scar tissue off. And 
I began, we started looking for other options and just the feeling, it was like, it started right before the pandemic happened. I was bed bound completely unable. I could sit for 20 minutes before I had to lay down. And it was like a prep, a prep course for the pandemic. Cause when the pandemic hit, everyone else is freaking out. Like, oh my gosh, we don't have, I can't do anything. I can't go anywhere. And I was like, guys, I've been doing this for so long. Like I can find a hobby. I am drawing, I'm embroidering. Let's get crafty up in here. It's gonna make the time go by quicker. We're gonna get through it. I felt like I had, my body prepared me with the tools that when you're just left with yourself, what are you gonna do? And I think that's powerful even going forward. Like no matter what happens with my body, I've been at the point where I could not move at all and all I could do was lay propped up in bed and I kept myself going. So like if I can do that then, I can go out in a wheelchair in the world. Like this was freedom when I finally could tolerate sitting. People are like, oh, she has loss of mobility. I'm like, this is gaining mobility. I had to be carried everywhere or pushed in a chair. So like I can push myself for the first time in years. This is my ticket to freedom. Like, do not, you do not have to pity this. This is a positive. We're happy about this, okay? <laughs> but I think that's the common like misconception when you first see someone in a chair, mm -hmm. that you should feel sorry for them, that they lost something. But for me, I gained it. We hope you're enjoying this episode so far. We wanted to take a moment to remind you that if you're moved by what you're hearing, you can watch the video version of this interview on our YouTube channel and learn more about how you can join in our mental health awareness campaign with Spring Health by following us on Instagram at stylelikeyou and at spring.health. Now back to this episode. So I know that you were saying at some point you started, you were at rock bottom. Can you take us a little bit through that? And how did that happen? Hmm. I never got to the point of wanting to make a plan. And I think that's interesting to think about because I don't, I don't know where that stemmed from, but I knew that there were options available out there to get help. And I was already going to therapy at that point. And I just had to, all I had to do was ask. And it took me, I could have asked months, weeks ago. And I just was the stigma around talking about suicide. People don't talk about suicide. It's, it's the censored word. It's, we don't want to watch those shows because they're sad and they're hard to look at, but when you're going through it, then that stigma is brought onto you. Like, my parents are going to be disappointed in me because I'm feeling this way. They've, my dad came from nothing and fought, 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 fought so that he could provide a stable, happy life for me, and I'm still suicidal. Like, that's was shame for me. In my head, I was doing everything I personally could do to keep myself going and all the tools I knew, and I realized I, there was more help out there, so I needed to just ask for it. That's, and I think that's the main thing with um, talking about suicide and talking about mental health is a lot of people don't know that you can just ask, and it's not gonna be turned down or laughed at or shameful. And when I tell my parents this, and even having guilt surrounding having time taken away from their lives because of surgeries. They're like, you should never feel guilt. None of this has ever been, you're not causing any of this. Like this is your body, you're surviving it and you should be, you know, we're grateful that you're even here still fighting. I never feel that, but I feel, sometimes you can't control how you feel and you just, you just feel it. No, none of my friends were talking about mental illness in high school, college. Like it was just me. I'm the only one going through this. 
I would secretly call the hotlines at nighttime because that's when all like, when there's no distractions and it's completely still and all you have to do is sit there with your thoughts. That's when it would get too loud for me. That's when I had to start listening to meditations just to have something, a narrative in my brain that wasn't darkness and just like, well, this is it in life. What are you gonna do about it? And so I finally just took the step, asked for help. That's all it took. Told my therapist, she immediately booked me an appointment with the um, psychiatrist, um, immediately got me into intensive outpatient program. I uh, walk into the room and there are chairs around the border of it and everyone in the room, no one looked alike. It was all ages. It was everyone had a, a different childhood, a different problem, a different reason that led them there. But we all had the same symptoms. It was like the hopelessness, the loneliness, the anxiety, depression, or PTSD. Some people had addiction. And my mom was like, oh, my poor baby with all of these people. Like these, I was the one of the youngest people in there. All these grown people that have had all of these very tough life experiences. And my poor baby's in there. And then the first time she came for family night, she was like, oh, I get it now. And I think that's, that's the beauty of so many things I found, like being in the queer community, being in the disabled community. I have friends with all different disabilities, but the feelings we feel are the same. We feel like we're misjudged by society. We feel like we're, it can be a burden to family. We feel all of these things, and for the first time, it's reciprocated back to you. You're not telling someone, and they're saying, I'm so sorry that you feel that way. You shouldn't feel that way. It was like, yes, I've had that too. I feel that all the time, yeah. Because I think before that, I didn't, I didn't know anyone my age or in my family that talked about that. And for the first time, everybody in the room was saying, no, I hear you, I've been there. The counselors there had also gone through their own journeys, like the people helping you. Yeah, I've been there too. Queer community, people that come before me saying, no, I've been where you've been. And there's gonna be a way out and there's gonna be a light. You just have to trust the process, trust your growth and keep going. And I think that's a life lesson that I've learned and has transferred from therapy to every community I'm a part of. That was the shift because when I started figuring out my sexuality, terrifying for different reasons than medical trauma, mental illness was, every, every pain and struggle is different, but I've been able to return to that core of community. Find the community, find the people who've been where you've been, find the people who are going through what you're going through and build off of that. And so I feel like that's what I've continued to do with everything. And that's the power of social media, growing up in a place where you don't relate to anyone. I've been able to find communities. I talk to girls from all over the US that use chairs for different reasons. And once a week we all meet up and just are able to like let go. And you don't have to put up the front being like, no, I'm doing great this week. Like, yes, finally, someone gets it. Someone gets nerve pain. Trying to explain nerve pain is is like trying to describe a dream that you woke up from and can't remember. You're like, it's this pain and it feels like this. Do you get that? And it's like, no, I don't get that. And so but to be able to talk to all these other women who are like, oh my gosh, nerve pain in your legs. Yes, it's the worst. And it's like, you don't even have to explain anything. You just show up as you are and you're accepted. And that's the power of community in any way, whatever community you're part of. Where are you at right now with like, just the sense of like acceptance of all that is about like your diagnosis, your disability, like. I feel in my core, I'm very stable just because 
I've had, had my T12 vertebrae removed, I have rods in my back, and I have a pain medication pump implanted in my stomach that's allowed me the ability to sit. So much opens up in your life when you have the ability to sit. And so for the first time, I feel like the world has opened up for me and I found gratitude for things like instead of morning not being able to walk, I'm grateful that I have the privilege to have a wheelchair. Some people don't have that opportunity to have a custom chair that fits to them, but I had the opportunity to get that. And so I try to use that privilege to continue to spread awareness for these certain things. And I'm grateful that I've been able to grow in that perspective. And I respect people who don't want to share their stories, but I, part of my own healing was listening to queer people, to listening to disabled people, and then the combination of queer and disabled people, like boom, now I can see my life. I can see, literally like I call her my queer big sister. She has short hair, she like, dances, she uses a wheelchair. Like I could see myself for the first time. It wasn't just me. I wasn't like, like oh, the double whammy of being disabled and being queer. It was like, no, it's not just me. Like there are the other people that are going through this and have found happiness and have found their own footing in their lives. And the second I could like just see myself out there and it wasn't just me anymore, I feel like the limitations that the world set for me lifted. When was the last time you cried? Oh, I cried um, when I had the opportunity to speak to another girl who has tether cord syndrome and a treatment failed for her. My mom cried too because um, Tether cord is so rare that it's very, I have met people on the broadest range of symptoms. It's not like you're diagnosed with this and this is what your life's gonna look like. It can be having one surgery and you don't have any surgeries ever again, or having one now, one when you're 50 and you're, you're fine. And this is this girl that has the same story as me. And she was at the point of where I was bed bound, where like her life is, it's pain. Every second of every day is pain. And I was so grateful to be able to connect with her and not that I even had advice, but just to say, I hear you and I understand you. Know that there's someone that understands your pain and know that in this darkness, there is gonna be light. And if you can't see it, you have to become it in your heart. You have to find the light inside of you. And so she went forward and did one of my treatments and before anything was successful for me, I had the failed treatment options. I had a spinal cord stimulator place and due to my anatomy, it failed. And so you put so much on this and you go through so many weeks and months and months of assurance approval and getting all your ducks in a row and you finally go forward with it and you just have to let go of control because it's either gonna work or it's not gonna work. So when she texted me saying like, it didn't come out how we wanted it to, that was the instant just like, it takes you back to that moment where you put everything on the line, you had your body opened, you've just given up control and just say like, okay, I hope the universe lets this work out for me. And when it doesn't, it's like, I didn't have anyone to pick me up after that. And so I'm grateful that the universe put me and life's put me in situations where I have felt that pain and it's wild now for me to think that if I, you would have gone back to me at that time, I'd been like grateful for this. But I'm so young and I was able to feel complete heartbreak, loss of hope. And then I was able to see myself climb up from that and to know that it's possible for me 
and be able to tell my story and talk to other people that are going through similar things, whether it's with tethered cord or disability or queerness and say like, yeah, shit sucks sometimes, but you're not alone. And if you can wake up tomorrow, sometimes, sometimes you have to take it day by day. Sometimes you have to take it minute by minute and second by second. And just by listening to me talk right now, you've made it 30 seconds. So that's something to be proud of. I grew up very much being, I want, I'm going to do things perfectly because that's going to set me up the best. I didn't break the rules as a kid because I knew that there'd be punishments to follow. I was uh, very much a type A student. I got my homework done right when I got home from school because I didn't want to have to worry about it. I just wanted everything to be perfect. I had my life planned out. I was going to have a husband. I was going to have kids. I was going to have the house. I was going to put my head down. I was going to go to school. I was going to finish in four years, be a teacher, have this whole life figured out. And then I very quickly have realized that you're not in control of your life. Your life's gonna go. I feel like my life is already pre-planned out and I'm just learning as I go the steps to go forward. And I think the second I was able to release that control of that big of a part that every single day that we're all worried about, like even going to college, I'm, I was so scared that I was gonna pick the wrong major and spend all this money and then have it be for nothing because I'm gonna go a different way. I feel like so many of us go through that, it's terrifying. And I've realized even just going through what my body's gone through, what my mental health's gone through, now I want to be a therapist. I realized from the start, it wasn't just being a teacher, it was helping people, using my experiences in the classroom, being a kid that was held back in kindergarten, feeling like I needed to be perfect. I wanted to relieve that for the next kid growing up. So I realized like at the core, this is really what I want. So I just need to keep traveling on this path and life's gonna guide me in the place where I'm gonna need to end up. So I feel like the second you're able to release that control, then it releases a lot of stress. And I am a very stressed out person. I know I don't seem it, but when life has this many things and you try to control all these little bits, like even with the fashion thing, like that was something I could control. It wasn't for anyone else, though, it was for me. And I think that's what I've gone going forward, those little bits like rolling up the bottom of your pants. If that makes you feel good, if that tells, tells the world like, this is me and I like to do that. That's that little piece that's just for you. And I think we need to live our lives in a sense that we're catering ourselves and no one else. Life's gonna take us where we're gonna go. You need to make yourself as comfortable as you can to just enjoy the ride. I think when I asked you on the Zoom what your biggest struggle was, I think you, what, do you remember what that answer was? Yeah, it was um, biggest struggle sometimes is and I think it's growing up as a woman, you try to people please. You wanna make others comfortable. I've gone through discomfort, so if I adjust myself in this tiny way, it's gonna make someone else a little more comfortable. If I, if I tone down my queerness a little bit, it's gonna make someone else comfortable. If someone's you know, saying like, you're great in all these ways, but there's this way that I would like, I would tone it down a little bit, or I would change it, or I would rethink that, and I found myself returning to that middle school mindset of, I need to impress somebody else in order to fit in and find my community. And I just literally two weeks ago realized I was doing this. And I was starting to tweak parts of myself that life has brought out of me. Like, I'm a very emotional person. If someone has, even my, 
my parents or my sister, if like they're disappointed in something or there's an argument, I want to work it out right there and I'm probably going to cry and we're just going to have to get over it and keep talking about it. And like there's just certain pieces to be the most presentable form of yourself that people want to change and want to suppress. And I think that even just started in high school, toning down like certain parts of myself or even look, look at kindergarten Claire and her, her Easter dresses every single day. Like, I need to return to that form of myself. I need to return to the, this makes me happy and that's all that matters. So I think going forward, I do have those moments of starting to conform back to what society wants me to conform to and fit in. And there's only a certain way to be queer. There's only a certain way to be disabled. There's only a certain way to be an activist. There's only a certain way to do it. And I think that is just the most toxic thing that our society is continuing to drill into us because you're losing all of those pieces of yourself as a kid that set you apart from anyone else. You're ignoring it, you're changing it, you're trying to shove it down. And again, I'm grateful that I was able to realize this now. For me, I'm only 22, but it feels like, why didn't I figure this out sooner? But I'm so grateful talking to other people being like, wow, I'm 60 and I just realized that. Or, you know, being retired, I just realized that now that I don't have to fit in at work anymore, like I finally just embraced myself. And so in the grand scheme of things, I'm like, I look back to that original thing of the universe is taking me on this journey to realize these certain things because it's gonna help me, but then also in whatever profession I go forward in, it's gonna help someone else to be able to teach them those lessons. When do you feel the most vulnerable? Stepping into a space that I'm unfamiliar with and again, it's that control aspect of my, that my personality's kind of tried to grip onto and you're not in control of so many things in your life that you start to grip to certain things. Like, I can control this. This is something that, you know, I'm gonna make a birthday card for someone. My writing better be perfect because that's something I can control. And part of that is my queerness. Um, it came out, bed bound, pandemic started, was able to sit, and now I'm vaccinated. And so I'm able to actually like enter queer spaces for the first time. And I think that's the most vulnerable when you've never stepped into a space before, never rolled into a space before. Like you've never, I don't know what that looks like for me. And I try to just go back again, like whatever is going to happen is going to happen. And if you try to ask your out for the first time and it completely flops, that's a learning lesson. Next time you're going to have to, especially as a queer woman who has a disability, I go even not just the way the universe works and the way people work, it's they have a preconceived notion of what disability is. And so I'm automatically forced into a box and it's almost like proving myself, which is sad, but showing them like, no, I have a disability, but there's so much more in me than just the disability. It doesn't limit me. Like I can do everything you can do, except with adaptations. I can get into that building if you slap a, rap, a little ramp down. Like it's just the adaptations you have to make in life to make it work and I don't have a choice. So if I want to be happy and I want to date, which I do, if I want to finally, like the world is literally opening up for me and I have to just swallow the fear and use that as the adrenaline to push me forward and just be ready to fail. Failure is something that hold, I hold very high in my head. Trying, I was always on top of my, again, it's like grades. It's those things that you can control. And so I became very comfortable. Like, okay, everything is in control. Everything's worked out. We're good to go. 
And then when your health flops, you're out of control. And so I feel like I'm entering this new stage of my life where if like, I feared having my spinal cord scraped. I feared having a bone taken out of my back and screws and rods and um, a machine being put into my stomach to give me pain relief. If asking a girl out is the biggest fear I'm having right now, like I made it through all of that. So I'm trying to just embrace the fear and get comfortable in it. Again, it's a different kind of fear, but it's a good fear. I'm excited to just be able to enter like just a queer space and for the first time mm -hmm. be like, oh my gosh, like everyone in here is like me. First time like not be like, it's just me. Like, of course I'm gonna, I might be the only one with a disability in the room, but what I've learned from the disability community is that there are way more invisible disabilities than there are physical. And even talking about mental health, I've talked about like, oh yeah, I have depression. And then half the people in my friend group was like, me too, but no one had the balls to say it. Mm -hmm. and so the second I'm able, and I am mm -hmm. really grateful that I do have the security and openness and comfort to talk about it because it allows others to feel like they're seen. And I think there's magic in that and there's power in that. So I try to embrace that. When do you feel the most beautiful? When I am reminding myself that the body I have is resilient. I look at my, most people look at my body if I'm at the beach and feel bad for me or ask me what's happened. And I look at my body and I'm like, look, I was opened up and it healed. Anything that I can go through in life is gonna heal. All you have to do is give it time and energy and patience. Oh, when you have, my whole back has a giant scar on it. When you have stitches coming out, it itches and you have to pull them out sometimes and it is like the most annoying thing ever, but in the end, it healed. And so that's why I try to look at my body and that's when I feel the most beautiful is when I remember those moments when I do feel, I do feel insecure sometimes when, you know, I, I never have like, I don't use my core muscles like I used to, so my stomach does look different. Um, you know, my, I have cellulite because I'm not walking all the time and I've never felt bad about that because it's like, God, my body is sitting here today and there is no need for me to feel shame in it. And I feel like when I'm able to appreciate my own body and what it's gone through, no one else's words can hurt that. You put that bubble up and just let it ricochet off and right back at them. Okay, so last question. Uh, why in your body, why in your skin, why in your journey, why, why is it a good place to be? I think that everybody's body, not just me with disability, not just me living with mental illness, physical disability, it's like we're all here today and that's a goddamn miracle. We lived through a pandemic, we've survived stereotypes that are harmful and deadly and we are all still here today and everybody in this room has a good body, everyone watching has a good body, everybody's a good body and we're taught to believe otherwise so that other people that fit a certain mold can continue to just be viewed as the most beautiful thing out there. This is the one way to be beautiful. And I look at my body, I look at so everybody's body and we're here today because we chose to be. Our bodies are fighting through whatever personal challenges we're going through. So my body's a good body because it has gone through hell and back. And it's sitting here today, it's, in one piece and that's a good day for me <laughs> thank you so that much. was so you that guys. was so beautiful thank you we hope you were inspired by this episode 
Until next week, that's it from me, Elisa. And me, Lily. If you were touched by this story, please take a moment to share this episode with any friends or family who could benefit from understanding that they are enough as they are. And if you agree that facades separate us and being radically honest brings us together, please help spread the movement for radical self-acceptance by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. Thank you again to Spring Health for supporting us in bringing our What's Underneath Pride series to life. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at stylelikeyou and at spring.health for more details on how you can be involved in sharing your story as part of our mental health awareness campaign and support one another in feeling less alone in our struggles. We can't skip ahead to a happy ending or live inside a photoshopped image or an Instagram filter. There's no finding oneself when glossing over the truth.